I'm going to pray for us right now. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, even as we sang right just a second ago, um, we acknowledge the fact that it is your word that is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. In other words, without your word, Father, we are lost. We are, uh, we are wandering. We are dead. But because you have spoken, because you have given us words of life, Father, we know how to walk in that newness of life. We know how to stay free. We know the, what is honoring and pleasing to you. And so, Father, in the midst of a world that is ultimately choosing what is right and wrong and, and it's fickle in its own way, Father, we're so grateful for an objective, eternal, and, and, and inspired word that never changes. So, Father, even now, give us hearts that are receptive. Give us ears that are able to hear what you have for us. And I pray that that receptivity isn't just hearing, but it is a follow-through. May we be eager to follow through with what you speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I wasn't planning to share this, but I was just thinking, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a guide to my path. We just got to go hiking the other day, and uh, us pastors spent a day in the uh, office otherwise known as the great outdoors, and I've always wanted to go, but I never, I finally was able to go, but Steve was our trusty guy. We went up to the Tulacane Mine and saw the, the World War II uh, bomber crash in the mountains there, and Steve and I put our headlamps on and went to the back end of this mine, and uh, we actually turned out our lights for a moment just to kind of get a sense for what real darkness is, and I'll tell you what, when you turn out your lights when you're 3,000 feet in the, in the center of this mountain, you turn off the lights, it's dark. I'm, I, rarely have I had a chance where I've actually been able to put up my hand and go, I can't actually even see my hand. <laughs> Steve's right next to me and I literally can't see anything. And yet, isn't that so true spiritually? According to the word of God, we see that apart from him illuminating our eyes, illuminating our minds, we are dead and lost in our sin. It's, it's much like being in the middle of a, of a mine shaft we cannot see, we don't know where to go, and until we turn on that lamp, only then are we able to see where the path leads. You know, in 1 Kings 21, there's a story, speaking of God's word, there's a story included in God's word about a man named Naboth. And uh, Naboth was a man who owned a vineyard, and this vineyard just so happened to be situated right next to King Ahab's palace. Well, King Ahab wanted to, kind of, in a sense, expand his gardens, expand his, his territory, and so he actually approached Naboth one day and says, hey, I want to buy your land. It just so happens to be very strategic to where my palace is situated, and so he said, I will buy this land from you. But Naboth doesn't want to sell to King Ahab because this land has been in this family. It, it, it was an inherited land from long ago, and so this, he said, this land is not for sale. I'm sorry. Well, we see in 1 Kings 21 that Naboth or Ahab goes away and he actually goes to bed that night angry and sad. In fact, Scripture says that the king went to bed with his face to the wall and he refused to eat. Translation, Naboth, or Ahab was having a pity party. He's like, I didn't get what I wanted. But then we see Ahab's wife Queen Jezebel, asking him what in the world is wrong with him, and Ahab explains what had happened. And so Jezebel tells Abraham, in a sense, he says, she says, stop pouting, 
You're the king. You should get what you want. Don't worry about it. I'll get it for you. And so we see Scripture saying this, that, that, that Jezebel wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with a seal, and sent them to the elders and other leaders of the town where Naboth lived. And in her letters, she commanded, call the citizens together for a time of fasting and give Naboth a place of honor. And then sit two scoundrels across from him who will accuse him of cursing God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And that's exactly what happened. They rallied a bunch of people. Naboth thought he was being praised. And instead, two people, predetermined, premeditated, brought false accusations against, against him, and they took him out and they stoned him to death. Well, not too long after, we see Ahab goes down to Naboth's vineyard and, and really ultimately to kind of collect it as his own, and God actually tells the prophet Elijah, Elijah, go and meet Ahab in Naboth's vineyard and give him this message, a message that he is going to die, and ironically, he's going to die in Naboth's vineyard, and also that Jezebel is also going to die and be eaten by dogs. To his credit, now by the way, I know sometimes scripture is not so G-rated, right? Sometimes scripture is just very raw in form. We see that when Ahab hears this message from Elijah, and he, you know, Elijah and Ahab, they know, like, they don't greet each other with a friendly greeting. They come together, and it's like, what do you have to do with me? They know they're kind of arch enemies, so to speak, but Ahab knows that Elijah represents God Almighty, and so when he comes with a message, and, and Elijah declares him, this is what's going to happen because of your wickedness, Ahab actually repents. He repents of his sin. He repents for what happened, even though Jezebel is the one that made it all happen. And God actually, in his grace, spares his life. But there's still consequences. So even though he repents and God spares his life, we see that God says, the, 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 the penalty for your wickedness will be carried out on your sons. We see that God, because he is a just God, we see that he's not only angered by the violation of the sixth commandment, that you shall not murder, and not only is he angered by the, the violation of the eighth commandment, that you shall not steal, but God is also angered by Jezebel's violation of the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, if you're new with us this morning, or if you haven't been here for a, a number of weeks, just for the sake of just super brief review, we've been going through the Ten Commandments out of Exodus chapter 20. And to give you an idea of why we are going through this or why in the world the Ten Commandments are given by God, we see that there's two great commandments that really summarize all of God's command, that really summarize all of Scripture, and that is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second follows closely on its heels. Love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commands, Jesus says, is the whole law fulfilled. Of course, then you can ask the question, well, what does it look like to love God with every aspect of our being? What does it look like to love my neighbor as myself? That's where the Ten Commandments come in. It gives us a fuller explanation of what it means to fulfill these two great commands. This morning, we unpacked, we unpacked the Ninth Commandment. And the Ninth Commandment helps us, in part, help us understand what it looks like or how we are to love our neighbor 
as ourself. In other words, one prominent way that you and I can rightly love one another as we're called or to love others the way we would want to be loved is being truthful not only in what we say to people, but being truthful in what we say about people. After all, false testimony and any form of lying at its root is demonic and it's contrary to the nature and person of God. Now what does it mean to testify falsely? What what do we mean by, by bearing false witness against our neighbor? Let me just give you a kind of a quick definition of what this means. False testimony or bearing false witness against one's neighbor means to speak and to, or to listen to any message that you know is not true and that will bring some degree of harm to that person, either by reputation or otherwise. The fact is, out of all the things that God, again, could have included in ten summary commandments, one of those commands was not to bear false witness against one's neighbor. Why is that? Well, as Proverbs 6 says, God, there's six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. What are those seven things that are an abomination to him? A haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that are, that are quick to shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers and sisters. You know, this is why God commands in other places such as Deuteronomy 17, again, for, for the sake of justice and for the sake of uh, not someone being put unnecessarily to death, he says, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, one who is supposed to die shall be put to death, but the person shall not be put to death merely based on the evidence of one witness. In other words, there needs to be multiple accounts to validate what is true. There's a reason why Jezebel actually you know, asked for at least two scoundrels, two, ac- two accusers, because she knew, even though she didn't follow the law of God, she knew what was in the law of God. She knew that one, one person bringing a false accusation wasn't gonna be sufficient to get what he, she wanted. And so she says, make sure there's at least Two witnesses bearing false witness. We see the prophet Zechariah in, in chapter 8 saying this These are the things that you shall do from the Lord. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are both true and that make for peace. Paul charges Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now up to this point, or so far, we might, we might think this is a pretty straightforward command, right? We might think that obviously even those who might be guilty of false testimony know that when they bear false testimony against somebody that it's wrong, even if they're trying to get away with it. They know that in some degree this is wrong. But much like stealing 
We see that there are both kind of the the obvious forms or the extreme form of this command, and then there are also maybe the the lesser obvious forms or the more general understanding of what this command. So what we see in Scripture is that God gives us a command. He gives us kind of the extreme form, but it's not just limited to to, to its extreme form. So we can say bearing false witness or being a, a false testifier against somebody else is, yes, wrong, but there's other ways in which we bear false testimony. There's other ways in which we can actually violate this command without actually thinking that we're doing that. You know, in our court system, looking at a retired Superior Court judge here, that's you, George. (laughs) You know, before someone testifies in a criminal case, Oftentimes, before they take the stand, obviously they can't just go, hey, do you want to share? And then they go up and share, but there has to be some sort of like, I promise to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. Do they still do that, George? I'm guessing. Yeah, I know, I'm sure that's not so PC anymore. So, But I promise to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. In other words, do they still even use the Bible? Yeah, I know, Exactly. It used to be, but not so much anymore. <laughs> Sometimes in the movies, they still kind of de- reflect it that way, but yes, things have digressed, have they not? The fact is, though, the truth is still desired. The truth is, the truth is still sought after. And, another, and, and, and in order for someone to take the stand or to testify in some way, they have to agree that, yeah, I promise to tell the truth and the whole truth. In other words, if I don't, then I am guilty of what the not the Bible necessarily, but what everybody knows is what's called a lie. A lie is any intentional violation of the truth. It is a false statement spoken for the purpose of deceiving and usually for self-serving gain. The interesting thing about lying is that lying wears many hats. Lying wears many hats, and the sin of false testimony disguises itself in many ways. What might be those many other forms of false testimony that this ninth commandment is describing? Well, I think one we might recall is uh, twisting the truth. One form of false testimony is twisting the truth. Sometimes we call these uh, what's referred to as weasel words, right? The, the actual literal animal, the weasel, uh, it, it's like much like a ferret, right? It's able to twist and turn and navigate through things without being touched. It's able to kind of get into crevices and get under things. I don't really, I've, not, I've never owned a ferret, but I, it's much like a weasel, and I know people that know ferrets. They can kind of like hide out in, the most, in some of the most inconspicuous little places and, and places that most animals and most things can't actually get to, but they are able to get to. And so we see that these, this twisting of the truth is consistent or correlated with what's weasel words because you're taking information and you're changing it and alluding to certain points ultimately to get others to think something that you want them to think. Some people call it sophism. A sophist is someone who uses logic to twist the meaning of words in order to present themselves in a better light or to achieve a certain outcome. That's what a sophist is. They twist the words in order to have a a certain outcome achieved. And at this juncture in a sermon, this is oftentimes where a lawyer joke comes in, right? 
We're like, well, who, what is an example of that? Well, you know, who twists words sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes to get what they want? Sometimes lawyers can be guilty of that. Sometimes, or oftentimes, the media can be guilty of that. But let's just make it personal. Sometimes we do that. You see, when we twist the truth, we oftentimes, at the same time, are also guilty of another form of false testimony. And that's not just in the twisting of words, but it's also the false testimony called slander. You might recall that last week I alluded to this and I even said I would kind of revisit it this morning. Remember that slander means to make a false or damaging statement about someone else. Slander is, is the utterance of false charges or even a misrepresentation which can either defame and or damage another's reputation. And the interesting thing about slander is slander can have some elements of truth to it, but the truths are twisted for the purpose of demonizing another person. John Bloom, actually, who writes for Desiring God Ministries, John Piper's ministry, he says that slander also can wear a hundred different masks. He goes on to say that slander can be information that is, that is passed along that seems like harmless hearsay, but yet the effect it has on our listeners is to leave them with an unfairly negative perception of someone else. Where he says sometimes we can embellish with information or tone a negative report about someone in order to enhance our listeners' perception of ourselves. Sometimes we can have a very real concern about someone, but we share it with somebody who cannot benefit from or help with that concern. And we do this, of course, because we simply want other listeners to think worse of a particular person. Or if we share a concern with an appropriate person, we can sometimes indulge our speculations and presumptions, mixing them almost imperfectly with facts for the listeners and even distorting the concern in order to sway a certain outcome or direction we desire. Point is, anytime we defame, insult, vilify, someone else for self-serving gain, we are guilty of slander. Anytime we even assume impure motives or even assume negative intentions, instead of giving someone the benefit of the doubt, we are guilty of slander. If you were with us this last weekend, you might recall the illustration I gave for you about the lady who approached the pastor, Right? She says, Pastor, I'm, I'm guilty of slander. And he says, do you do this often? And she says, unfortunately, yes. And he says, I want you to go to the market, buy a chicken that hasn't had its feathers plucked yet. And then when you buy the chicken, start walking and start unplucking all the feathers. And when you're done, come to me. And so she goes off and buys a chicken that hasn't yet been plucked and she takes out all the feathers. And she comes back to the pastor. It's like, now What? And he says, I want you to go and I want you to pick up all the feathers that you unplucked. Of course, her, she's kind of astonished that the pastor would say something like that because guess what? How in the world is she going to pick up all the feathers? Because she says, I've, I've carelessly plucked them all out and the wind has taken them everywhere. How in the world am I going to pick up all those feathers? 
And he goes to respond, such is the way of our words. You see, you can't undo everything that has been spoken. You can't undo words that have already, been, that have already left your lips. The words that, uh, that are given in a slanderous tone or motive can never fully be restored. It's amazing to me that a good reputation can take a lifetime to build, but can only take one conversation to destroy it. A close cousin to slander is something that we might even be all too familiar with, and that is gossip. You see, while slander is kind of the, is, is passing on information, maybe f- most likely false information about another person, gossip is passing along information that you don't actually know for sure if it's true, or you're passing on information you do know is true, but isn't necessary. And unfortunately, the passing on of information that hasn't been totally validated or that isn't necessary is so common that we often don't, times, don't even realize that we're doing it when we do it. Either we do it ourselves or we entertain it even in our listening to it. But like slander, gossip is equally destructive and divisive. Listen to what Proverbs 16.28 says, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisper separates close friends. A chapter later, Proverbs 17, 9, whoever covers an offense seeks love or promotes love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. But oh, how do we love secrets, right? How we love juicy details about somebody else, especially the bad ones, right? Listen to what Proverbs 18 says. 8 says, the words of a whisper are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Have you ever stopped to think just for a moment? Have you ever stopped to think that when you entertain and listen to someone else's comments and messages and perspectives about somebody, when you, give, when you lend a listening ear to that, have you ever stopped to think that as much as that person is talking to you about someone else, they're probably talking about you to somebody else too? In other words, if someone feels the freedom to come to you often to talk about many other people, maybe even justifying it because we need to pray for that person, you probably need to make this conclusion too. They're probably speaking just as much about you to others as well. Blaise Pascal says it this way. He says, I lay it as a fact that if all men knew what others say of them, there would not be four friends in the world. If only we knew. Sometimes I'm glad we don't know. I'm very thankful that I don't know all that has been said about me. But we need to understand this too, brothers and sisters, that it's not, gossip is not just in the words that we say. It's not just in what we communicate to others, but it's also, as I said earlier, it's when we lend an ear. It's not just in what is said, but it's also in what is heard. 
You see, when you lend a, a listening ear to gossip, you are equally complicit in that gossip. So we need to be careful with our words. But false testimony takes another form as well. It's not just in our slander. It's not just in you know, twisting the truth. It's not just in gossip. But false testimony can also be defined in the, uh, what, a word called flattery. I think Alistair Begg, he said it really well. He said, if gossip is saying something behind a person's back that they would never say to someone's face, then flattery is, flattery is saying to a person's face what we would never say behind their back. It's almost the, the opposite of gossip. What is flattery? For the sake of equal understanding, flattery is excessive or insincere praise given especially to further one's own interest. Oh, that was amazing. I'm so, you did such a great job. You're so good at that. Did you hear so-and-so? Yeah, right. Terrible. Bombed it. Oh, Pastor Aaron, that was such an amazing service. Wonderful sermon. I've heard better. You see, flattery can sound, sound like encouragement, but in reality, it may just be another form of lying. Again, John Bloom says, encouragement is truth that is spoken from a loving motive to increase faith and hope in the hearer, but flattery is a lie. It's a lie that masquerades itself as encouragement, but really is motivated out of selfish ambition to manipulate the hearer and to achieve the kind of the flatter's covert purpose. In other words, I'm giving you props. I'm, I'm, I'm tickling your ears. I'm saying things that you would probably want to hear so that you think that I'm pretty amazing. In other words, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. The common denominator in all false testimony is yours truly. Is, as many flaws as he might have, and as many quirks as he might have, I gotta give it to Simon Cowell. He was definitely not a man who was known for his flattery. You know Simon Cowell, right? American Idol, America Got Talent, he's really renowned. But he was the most blunt, honest judge in all those things. And honestly, I think he actually, over time, at first it was kind of a shock and awe. He comes from the UK, he comes to the Americas, he's putting on these shows, and everybody's just like, whoa, he's kind of not very nice. And everybody else is trying, like, no, that was great. Your voice sounds great. You know, but it's like, yeah, so great. Oh, he just love you so much. And he's like, no, that was terrible. And this is what you need to do. And over time, you start realizing, like, actually, he's the most honest person, the most helpful advice given in that whole, the, the whole competition. He tells people what they need to hear. So, yeah, he may have a lot of other character flaws about him, like we all do, but guess what? He was definitely honest. Because the fact is, the Lord hates flattery. Proverbs 29.5, a man who flatters his neighbor only spreads out a net for his feet. Proverbs 26.28, a lying tongue hates its victims and flattering words only causes ruin. Listen to what Jude says in verse 16 of his very short letter. He says, these people are grumblers and complainers living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves and they flatter others. Why? To get what they want. 
You see, God hates flattery because it is ultimately steeped and it's demonic and it's all about the flesh. It's all about me. And sometimes we'll butter somebody else up very quickly in order to ultimately feel better about ourselves. So there's twisting the truth, there's, there's slander, there's gossip, there's, there's flattery, but there's even other forms of false testimony that we might overlook very quickly. For example, we could talk about the false testimony uh, of exaggeration. Exaggeration is just another way of distorting the truth. And of course, exaggeration might seem or appear innocent or no big deal, but it is still dishonest. Without kind of diving into too much detail here, I think it's pretty straightforward, but let me ask you this question. Are you somebody who can be trusted to portray information accurately or represent yourself accurately? Perhaps you would have to ask yourself the question, am I somebody that when I give information, when I speak of something or someone or about a certain situation, do people know that when Aaron speaks, he's not embellishing it? He speaks honestly. He's okay if the situation sounds boring. He's okay if the story isn't as exciting as the other person's story, you know? You know, it's kind of funny when we share stories, we like to kind of one-up the stories. Oh, yeah, that's great, but I have something even better and greater, right? Oh, that's really cool, but I have something even cooler. And then we're almost in that moment attempted, I got to make this really cooler <laughs> because I got to one-up that one story. So, and so we start exaggerating, you know, just a little bit, right? Make it just a little bit better than it was. But that's a form of dishonesty. One final form I want to highlight here when it comes to false testimony is the jumping to conclusions. And I think this is a very important issue to at least mention for our time here this morning because it seems to be so rampant in the world in which we live. You see, the fact is, another thing that I'm grateful for, at least our justice system, when it's acted upon rightly, is that people in our justice system are innocent until proven guilty. It's what makes the United States justice system so, uh, in a sense, contrasted with so many other justice systems in the world today. You're innocent until proven guilty. In other words, just because an accusation is made and just because allegations are asserted doesn't make that accusation right. As I said, this is a, a very this is a significant problem in our world today. People are quick to blame. They're quick to assert guilt. They're quick to retweet fault. They're quick to respond emotionally without all the facts being presented. And if you don't jump on the emotional bandwagon, then you're accused of your by your silence and by your patience. But you see what is oftentimes lacking when allegations and statements are made, usually statements of slander, what is oftentimes lacking is are people willing to step up and say, can we just say time out for a moment? Wait a second. Do we really know all the facts? Do we really have all the information? Do we really know what happened? Before we make potentially wrongful conclusions. It's important that we understand both sides or all sides before we form conclusions. 
You know, as a pastor, one of my roles, one of the things that I'm involved with as a pastor is that I counsel people. And uh, I learned very quickly that there are always two sides to every story. There are always two sides to every situation. It's much like what Proverbs 18, 17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So as a pastor, part of my role is to primarily listen with discernment and to offer feedback as led by the Holy Spirit. But the whole time I'm realizing just because someone comes to me and kind of shares their life and why they're the victim, why the other person is a perpetrator, I also know this, there could, that could be true, but I'm not forming any conclusions until I've heard both sides. There's always two sides to every story. And brothers and sisters, we need to be willing to say, wait, time out, hold on a second, before we jump to conclusions and are ready to kind of exercise judgment, do we know all the facts? Do we really know what happened? We live in a culture where it's just, it's just people are responding emotionally so quickly. May we be a church that is willing to give people the benefit of the doubt until proven otherwise. That's justice. So we come full circle. The ninth commandment. Do not bear false testimony against, one neighbor, uh, against your neighbor. The fact is, though, this commandment is really not about lying so much as it is it's about how we actually love one another effectively. And as I said in the beginning, one of the pro- most prominent ways that you and I can rightly love our neighbor as we do ourselves or love our neighbor as, they want, as we would want them to love us is by being truthful in what we say to people as well as, as well as being truthful in what we say about people. As James 3 warns, right? If you look at James chapter 3, there's a whole half of a chapter devoted to the, the power of the tongue, right? And though the tongue may be very small, it may be one of the smallest organs in our body, it has the ability to promote great good and benefit the lives of many people, but it also has the ability to cause great harm and destroy the lives of people. So the warning there is really to, to learn to bridle or control our tongues. So how do we actually control our tongue? If the ninth commandment says, basically, we need to be controlling, we need to understand the facts, we should not bear false witness, we should not be uh, active liars, how do we control our tongue so that what comes out of our mouth is truth? I've shared this before, but I'll share it again. One of the mantras in my household growing up, though as a kid I did not um, entertain it as much as I do now as a parent with kids, but my parents would constantly say this, Aaron, or whoever, is it necessary, is it kind, and is it true? And the most operative word in that question is the word and. Not is it necessary, kind, or true, because I always find at least one of those to be consistent. But is it necessary, is it kind, and is it true? If all three filters are representative, then guess what? Then it might be worth saying. I was just reminded this past week, the, the, the acronym THINK, right? Before you speak, THINK. And the THINK acronym is, 
Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? And is it kind? Before you speak, think. Because after all, our words have great ability to cause great good as well as to cause great harm. I think a second thing I'd like to, another tip and how we bridle or control our tongues is this. Be willing to stop a conversation that is motivated by gossip or slander. Be willing to stop a conversation. Now, I, I, I'm full aware of this fact that if you were to actually say, hey, time out a second, I don't want to listen to this, they might actually talk about you negatively to someone else because they got offended or hurt or whatever else. But we have to be willing to stop a conversation before it starts. Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, don't use foul or abusive language. Instead, let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. You see, when, when we listen to information, then we have a responsibility in what we do with that information. And sometimes the best service you can do for yourself and even for somebody else is to say, hey, time out a second, wait. I'm not sure if I should be listening to this. Or, or just saying, hey, before we go any further, could, could, have you talked to that person that you're talking about, that you're frustrated about? Have you talked to that person? Well, no, no, I mean, I'm, I'm processing. I need, an, I, need a, I need an outlet to process with. No, you need, a, you need to process with the Lord and then you go and talk to that person. That's how we handle disagreements in conflict. A third thing is pretty straightforward, very easy, but sometimes difficult to do. Always tell the truth. I just read in the Berenstain Bears with my kids earlier this week, unintended actually, but one of the books they picked out was tell, about telling lies. It was actually just before I actually started doing my study for this. I was like, oh, that's interesting. But Mama Berenstain Bear, she, she says this, it's difficult to, to tell multiple lies and be consistent with your lies. You tell one lie, then you go tell another lie to support that lie, then you tell another lie to support that lie, which is support that lie, and then you start kind of getting your facts mixed up, and then all of a sudden you, the truth is revealed. So the rule of thumb is just tell the truth all the time. Regardless of how people respond to it, regardless of what, what, what the outcome is because of it. Let me just say the, this as a, really an exhortation of warning, but hopefully a positive motivation. Jesus says this in Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. Think about that. We will all give an account for every careless word that we speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I know this, as I was studying this commandment, I was like, Lord, how do I put a nice positive spin on this? But the fact is, I would say out of all the commands that somewhat are very obvious in their own right and in their own context, 
This is probably one of those commands that hits most close to home for every single person. The fact is, we could probably all acknowledge if we were to take a show of hands or at least admit honestly that we've all slandered. We've all been complicit in gossip both in our words and in our listening. We've all twisted the truth. We've all flattered somebody else. We've exaggerated We've jumped to conclusions, and yet all that is a form of false testimony that is contrary to the nature and the person of God. And that's why in love for us, he gives us these commands. Out of love for us, he gives these commands because he says, I want you to know how to relate to me and to relate to one another rightly. This is how we promote unity in the body of Christ. This is how we promote love in the body of Christ when we choose not to say things that are negative and ill intent but we choose to say words that speak life that bring truth that encourage and that inspire so God loves us enough to say don't be like this but instead speak words that are going to benefit the other person not only so that you might glorify God but that you can love your neighbor as yourself.